Our scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have the heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faceless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be with the lake lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second earth. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Well, I mean, once you start singing Christmas songs, it's really Christmas, right? I don't know if, you, if you've celebrated already all the days that are marked. I'm sure I'll refer to them in other sermons before Christmas. But now, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the days that would be uh, notable for, for Christians in the past, uh, some of us have, have forgotten some of those, but the new days are things like Black Friday, I heard there was a thing called Red Thursday. I don't even know what that means. Um, I think it's Canadian Tire Sale Day or something. Uh, there's uh, Cyber Monday tomorrow. Some of you are already preparing for that. This is, I, and for me, while I always say to you, I say to you over and over again, don't get involved in Christmas wars. Like you don't have to convince anybody else um, to celebrate the way you celebrate. Your responsibility is to is to truly focus on on the birth of Christ, on the incarnation. Not to get upset at other people who don't. But it's also okay to note in your own prayers, in your own mind, that, that, uh, that in, in ways our culture has, has considered this story, you know, archaic or meaningless or not worth really focusing on, but replaced it in many times with cons- just consumption, which we know doesn't work, um, doesn't satisfy. But that's another sermon, and we'll get to that uh, another time. But here we go into, into Christmas. 
I've told you this uh, story. Well, this is our theme for, for this month as we head towards Christmas. It's, our, our theme is peace on earth. And today we look at the need for peace, the first Sunday in Advent. And uh, one of the things that comes in my mind every Christmas, and so you get to hear it over and over again as well, is a story of my best friend Rick Calhoun and myself uh, playing pool at Thunderbird Lanes. Does anybody remember Thunderbird Lanes? Yes. Was it on 16th Street, right? And uh, I think this was post-high school for us. So um, I would have been in university, and, and uh, Rick, uh, th- I, this might have been, he, Rick went and lived in Quebec for a while and worked at a very famous uh, sound studio there. Uh, but he must have been back in town or something, and, and it was springtime. It would have been April or May. And uh, we didn't have anything to do in the middle of the day, and so we went and played pool upstairs at Thunderbird Lanes. Now, the kind of people who gather and play pool in the middle of the day at Thunderbird Lanes, it's people like Rick and I. Um, and there were, only, there were only four other people in the establishment at that time, and they looked a lot tougher and a lot meaner than either one of us. Uh, and then Rick decided there was a jukebox there. And Rick decided that he would put some music on. So he put in his dime or penny. We're not that old, but uh, whatever it was. And then he walked back to... And the other thing is, neither one of us could, could or probably still, uh, we couldn't play pool. And we were goofing around, and the guys, the tough guys that were there were already hating that we were there. We could tell. And so, you know, we were being silly. And so Rick came back after he put the money in the machine, and he said, we might want to leave now. And I said, why? And he just waited. And then I heard, now granted, it was April or May. And then as I asked why, he didn't answer. He just waited. And I heard, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And the guys, the other four people in in the pool hall turned. And they just, they were smiling and they started singing. No, not at all. They didn't find it funny and they were very, very upset at us. It is decidedly, for them at least, not the most wonderful time of the year. It's uh, something that I use in, in my own thoughts each, each Christmas, um, and this is why. It's a, obviously a humorous way of, of looking at the, the tension between, between what we feel and what we're supposed to feel. Right? What you're, there's a disconnect there. And that, for many people, can be very, very troubling. It's one of the reasons that people who have lost loved ones can struggle more at Christmas because your memories, your... And, and let me tell you this. When, when you look back at the Christmas photos, you, you look back with nostalgia, you tend... I guess different people are different, but I think a fairly common thing is you tend to forget the stress and the tension and the lack of peace you were feeling when that photo was taken. Unless you were a child, right? But, but you... The, the disconnect between what we're supposed to feel and what we feel. You're supposed to feel, at Christmas, I would think, you're supposed to feel nice. But it's not going to take you long. You could go today to the mall, and in about five minutes or less, you're not going to feel so nice anymore. You're supposed to, so you feel tense or on edge, you're supposed to feel, at Christmas, love. Now, I would think you're supposed to feel love starting with your own loved ones and in your own family, which you can until you gather. And somebody starts talking. 
and they give their opinion on something, or they say what's wrong, or they say, you know, aunt so-and-so does what aunt so-and-so always does. And, and of course, we all feel that the other people are the ones causing the strife or the tension. You're supposed to feel love, but often, even in your own family, you become aware, extra aware of the differences. And you can bring that out from your family to the community and to the world. You're supposed to feel overwhelmed with feelings of goodness and comfort and joy. But the truth is at Christmas, and this can be for people who have faced tremendous difficulty or are facing uncertainty heading into the new year or are aging, but not only in those circumstances. You're supposed to be overwhelmed with feelings of goodness and comfort and joy, but often you can feel afraid of the future. Like you don't have enough, even for Christmas. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. The supposed to feel can make what you do feel worse. Put a word on the screen here. This is... When we say peace on earth, this is what will strike us pretty early on in our consideration. I say peace on earth, or I drive down 19th Street, and there used to be a house. The house is still there, but one of the ways they used to decorate, they had words, peace and joy, I think, the two words they had lit up. You might see it lit up in various places, the word peace. And if you see that word, you can think of what you know of the world, what you know of your own spirit and soul, what you know of... uh, Uh, just lack of peace in the world, and this is the word that can come to mind. When we think of peace, we're often confronted by its absence. And nowhere is this felt more than at Christmas. Luke's telling of the Christmas story, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and they said, peace on earth. But if you remember the scene, the scene of the angels appealing, uh, appearing to the shepherds, where were the shepherds? They were out in the fields. They were outcasts. They were looked down upon by many in society. They weren't exactly comfortable. And the place to which they were directed by this chorus of angels, the angels that had just declared peace on earth and goodwill, the place to which they were directed is what? An animal stall. The outcasts were directed to other outcasts, people who hadn't even been given any room. And you're not allowed to say from the front at a church what the animal stall was actually like. But that's what it was like. It was like a place where animals stay. And the people who had, who had heard from this chorus of angels, peace on earth, and here's how you're going to know, I'm going to send you to a place, at least it could have been a nice hotel. At least there could have been some really nice meal prepared. At least there could have been decorations. But they were sent to this animal stall. And this is how you'll know. You'll find a child wrapped in cloths, lying in a, in a what? Lying in a feeding trough. Peace on earth. How could peace be declared at such a time? How could anybody feel peace in either one of those scenes? Now ask yourself the question. How could you feel peace right now with what you have in your life, the uncertainties that you're facing? Is it easier for them or for you? 
what time would be better if not that time? Because the truth is, every time in our human history has been a time of discord and war. In fact, Scripture says, Woe to those who cry peace when there is no peace. And yet Jesus says to his disciples, a promise to them, he says, Peace I leave with you. He said that to you. My peace I give to you. Let not, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what is happening? We are told not to pretend there's peace when there is no peace, and yet we hear this promise that Jesus Christ will give us peace. And the very declaration at his birth is peace on earth. Our text is Revelation chapter 21. And following, we read the scripture, but I would be interested for you to read on into, into the next little bits and describing uh, from this vision. This is a picture in Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation. It is a picture of perfect peace. You've, you can read it in there, because I know the part that resonated with you the most, or might. I mean, it's pretty stark at the end, and we'll get there, the, the sulfur and, and burning and all that. But the part that resonates with you the most is is that every tear will be wiped away. Beautiful promises. There's a line at the beginning that says there will be no more sea. You know what that means in biblical interpretation? So all the oceans will be gone? You know? It it actually it doesn't mean that. It's 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 a metaphor because in those times the sea meant what? Still does for, for many people, meant chaos. Disorder, the places of darkness. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more confusion. There will be no, you won't be tossed around anymore, even in your own mind. And every tear will be wiped away. This is a picture of peace, but it's a heavenly picture. It's a cosmic picture, and it's among the visions of John that he was having. And remember last week we told you that John was exiled to this island where he had these visions, and he was exiled for his faith because he refused to basically say that Caesar was over all. And he was old, so he wasn't really a threat to the the kingdom. And so they exiled him, and he had these visions. John living in unpeaceable times, himself an exiled prisoner. Eugene Peterson, in his, uh, in his uh, reflection on Revelation, has this point that I have on the screen right now that's helpful to me and I hope to you. He says, we often interpret in the wrong direction. What he means is we take our lives. So you take a concept like peace. You want to feel peace, I would think. No, I really don't. I want to feel lack of peace. No, we'll, we'll assume you want to feel peace. And so what you do is you take your life and the presence of peace or the lack thereof, and then you interpret what peace means starting with your life. It's a natural thing to do. You even then go to Scripture and you read what Scripture has to say to you. But did you see how you start with your life? What Peterson says is we interpret in the wrong direction. And so we take a concept like peace and we make it much smaller than it is in God's economy, God's way. So what you need to do, he says, is take a picture like the end of the book of Revelation. The new heaven and the new earth. And look at the peace that's proclaimed there and interpret back into your own life. In other words, you have no idea what true peace means. The fullness of peace that's promised in Jesus Christ. 
We explain heaven in terms of earth, Peterson says, rather than earth in terms of heaven. And in doing so, we become unaware of glory. This is the truth of Revelation chapter 21, that heaven is a city. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And verse 5 says, I am making all things new. A new heaven and a new earth simply means everything. That's how people reading that or listening to somebody say these words that when the vision was received would understand it. The heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. The sky and the ground. It means everything. Everything is being made new. Earth and matter. Soul and spirit. The earthy things and the great invisibles. And heaven, and this is not like you would draw it often. Heaven is a city. It's not a garden stroll. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a city where people live in peace. We're told about the city later as you continue to read in Revelation. And I'll just tell you briefly. Firstly, we're told the dimensions of the city. And you can read that and you might think, why is this in the Bible? It's this many, it's this long, and it's this big, and it comes down from, from heaven. What you need to know about the dimensions of the city is that nothing is out of place. It's perfectly, or for those who are into this, uh, it's perfectly designed. It works. Some of you uh, were part of the SkyTrain breakdown this week. I see that hand, Corrine. And we have cities that in some ways work well. In some ways, Vancouver works a lot better than other places in the world. We're blessed to live in the cities that we live here on the North Shore. But this new city will be perfectly designed and will work perfectly. Nothing out of place. Second thing is that it's light-filled. In fact, as you read in Revelation, there's no need for lights, street lights, and all that. Like This is a big deal in most cities. But there's no need for lights like that because the glory of God shines so bright. That's what the Scripture says. God's presence is the light for the city. Do you remember the first act of creation in Genesis? We went from Genesis to Nazareth. Remember the first act of creation? Let there be light. And now at the end of Scripture, everything is light. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Shining by the glory of God. And we're reminded in our Christian faith that Jesus conquers darkness. And if you read in Revelation here, Just like it says there will be no more sea, it also says there will be no more night. There will be no more darkness, it means. Darkness of soul and spirit. Terror and fear. And thirdly, there is life. In the scene in Revelation, there's a river that's described. And the river waters the land. And there's a tree, we're told, on both sides of the river. And the tree yields its fruit in season but it's the kind of tree that I've never heard of before because every month there's a different fruit. That that would be a nice tree. Every month there's a different fruit and it's just, it's abundant. And the next month another fruit. And the tree is on both sides of the river somehow. The picture is this for you. And remember, these are visions that John's having. They're metaphors, right? But the, the picture is this for you. There is life and life and more life. Death has been banished. 
There's abundance. Perfect peace. Our yard now, I meant to have a picture, it doesn't matter, but our yard right now, our backyard is, is, it's not actually, like I'm not complaining, but it's ugly. Uh, because we have a number of trees, or a few trees along one of the fences, actually in behind the shed and another one. But from about now until March, April, I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's not that nice. It's just a bear. I mean, you can see the mountains, which is nice. But late in the spring, you wouldn't believe the color. And of course, for us, we can see the difference in the photos. And there's many more photos taken in the spring. Life and life and more life. It's like a symphony. This is not simply saying all is good. The lack of peace, things of non-peace are done away with. That's the end of this text. It's easy for you to focus there because you, you know, Christians for so long can focus on how to avoid hell or something like that. That's not the emphasis in Revelation. It's not the emphasis in this reading. The emphasis is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we need verse 8 because verse 8 shows us that all darkness is done away with. What I don't want you to do with verse 8 is start thinking, yeah, the baddies get wiped out and I, I get saved. I hope you have a deeper Christian faith than, than that. It picks up in Revelation 22, verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you could go there. There's no longer anything that's accursed and then there is this promise. There's light, there's, there's perfect city. There's light from God's glory. There's life and more life and more life. And then this. And they will see His face. No one ever, ever has seen the face of God and lived. You remember the story of Moses, right? Can I see you, God? He asked at one time, can I see your glory? And then at Sinai, he interacted with God and wanted to see God. And God said, well, I can't, you can't see my face because if you see my face, you die. And that kind of wrecks this whole project. And so God says, well, you can just see my glory. No one has ever seen the face of God and lived. But look at the promise here at the end of Scripture. And they will see his face. They is, God, is those who have been redeemed. The promise to all people. With no faith in Jesus Christ. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay, now that sounds creepy. Now you get into like end time stuff and people trying to figure out the dates and something's on their forehead, something bad or something good. And no, no, what this means is this. His name will be on their foreheads. It means this. They will be made new. They will be have when you when you see someone in this perfect place of perfect peace, they will have the character of Christ. They've been transformed. Peace in him, peace on earth, on whom his favor rests. And you hear the angels singing this peace on earth on whom his favor rests, and you think, okay, who gets the peace and who doesn't? Am I one of the ones on whom his favor rests? And, and those who aren't here, of course, they don't get the peace, right? Can you please stop that? The focus isn't who's in and who's out. The focus is who brings the peace. Him. This is his promise. 
You need to stop trying to figure out who's in and who's out and start focusing on the Prince of Peace. Peace is connected not to our circumstance or even to our declaration. Peace is connected in this scripture, both in, both in Revelation and in the story of Christmas. Peace is connected not to us, like our doing, but to Him. The promise is for all. His life for all. His sacrifice for all. The scope of His promise is creation and all history. Let me give you two scenes to finish. This is the risen Savior, Jesus appearing, as we read last week in Revelation. But you remember the times he was on this earth, and you remember the stories. One from Matthew chapter 14, when he was with his followers. It's easier for you to think of these ones than the Revelation ones. He's with his, his, his followers. Well, his followers have gone off in a boat, some of his disciples. And he's not with, with them. And you know the story, right? A storm comes up, and the boat is tossed back and forth. And the disciples are terrified, fearing for their lives. And the boat is, and the scripture says, beaten by the waves. You hear the scripture for your own life. And then they see a ghost. It's just like you. I mean, because this is what we all do. Our lives are beaten by the waves, and we know only one thing. It can only get worse. And then they see a ghost. Now there's a ghost. Now we're totally done for. We thought the waves were going to kill us, but now we wish we were going to get killed by the waves because that's better than getting killed by a ghost. And they see a ghost. And they're freaking out, but he speaks to them. It's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then Peter, Peter is just this tempestuous, he's like the storm. Peter says, and don't congratulate yourselves for this. I've heard sermons that say, we've got to get out of the boat, and we've got to walk on the water. Peter's not congratulated for this. Peter says, if it's really you, in other words, he's doubting that it's Jesus. If it's really you, call me and, and let me walk on the water like you're walking on the water. And Jesus obliges, come. And Peter is walking on the waves and not sinking. When everything around him says he should be sinking. But you know the story. As long as his gaze is on Jesus, he stays on top of the water. But then he sees the wind. That's what scripture says. This, again, this is your life. He sees the wind. I know you guys think, well, you can't see wind. I know you. You're really good at seeing the wind in these kinds of circumstances. Peter sees the wind. And when he sees the wind, what happens? He starts to sink. He sees the waves. In other words, he sees that this place that he's in is not a place of peace. And when he's aware of the lack of peace, he sinks. And then he is rescued by the hand of Jesus. And they get into the boat and the winds and the waves cease. There's another scene uh, my telling is from Mark chapter 4. His followers are again in a boat, but this time Jesus is with them. Remember that time? He's with them in the boat. And a storm comes up, and there's wind and waves again. And what else? There's fear. His disciples are all afraid. Here we go again. 
We're done for. Now this is definitely it. This time, I was really afraid a couple of years ago when I faced those circumstances. But now what's coming down the line next, now my life is truly done for. Just like you. They're afraid again and the waves are breaking into the boat, we're told. And Jesus is there. And what's he doing? Remember this? This is how he seems to be with you too. What's Jesus doing while they're freaking out? He's sleeping. What kind of Savior does this? One thing you expect of Jesus is that when you're freaking out, he freaks out too. And sometimes you demand that of friends, ministers, others in your life. And you get terribly upset when they're not freaking out, when you're freaking out. Jesus is sleeping. And they start screaming. And in fact, they say to him, they're like, wake up, Jesus, there's a storm. And then they say this, don't you care that we're perishing? Can I just hold that? Don't you care that I'm feeling what I'm feeling right now? And Jesus gets up. And he, what he doesn't do is as important as what he, what he does. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. I do care. I really, really do. I'm sorry that you feel this way. He just gets up and he calms the storm. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. And what happens with the followers? They don't get it. Now they're not afraid of the wind and the waves anymore. They're kind of afraid of him. They're astonished. What did they fail to see? What did Peter fail to see? What did the others as well fail to see in the next scene? And what do we fail to see? We have this need for peace in, in history between nations. I don't have to tell you that. We have this need for peace, the storms in your own soul. And you know when you lack peace in your own soul, the kind of damage that you can do to those around you? I know that full well. Need for peace in the world and need for peace from the storms in our own soul, though many of you would try to convince me otherwise that those storms don't exist. It's not the circumstances in any of these stories or even in Revelation that bring peace. Not certainly as the shepherds proclaim it, or as the angels proclaim it to the shepherds, because nothing changes in this scene. They're not all of a sudden rich. They're not directed to some opulent place. Where's the peace from? In every case, the peace is in him. And what I want to say to you is, would you pray for that? I'm telling you, if you seek Jesus Christ, if you respond to this call for faith in your own life, you will know peace. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't fail and be tossed around and look back at the, and see the wind again. But I will promise you the peace is there. I know it full well. The peace is in Him. It's always been in Him. He's not a means to an end. He doesn't come to change your circumstance. So now your circumstance has changed and you don't need Him anymore. That's what the disciples couldn't see in the boat. He's the peace. Peace on earth. We have this desperate need for peace. 
You're going to turn around and go out of this place and within moments you're going to see it. Because if you don't see it in a mall parking lot, you'll feel it in your own heart. This need for peace. Peace on earth. And even to the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, peace in Him. And as we sang, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. And you just, you just got to change the name there. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Sutherland, O St. Timothy's, O Lawrence. Right? We go name by name by name. Peace has come to thee. Rejoice, rejoice. Heavenly Father, help us to see that our peace is found in in you, in the sending of your Son to remind us of who you are, that you have not left us alone. We thank you that we are saved by your love. Lord Jesus, give us a deeper picture of what's happening this Christmas, not only as we come here to celebrate, but even particularly as we live in this world where there is so much searching and so much lack of peace. Help us to know how to speak to others without sounding like annoying people who know better. We're, we're not uh, superior to anybody. We're dependent upon you and your presence. May we be a blessing in this community. And may we hear first so that we can declare to others peace on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.